<laughs> All right. And welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday morning, afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, my name is Teresa, and I am here with my co host, Emily, Matt, and Jasmine. How you guys doing? Hello. Hey. Good. Okay. Yeah, doing okay. Yeah, it's hot, right? Like yeah. Yeah, this is the time of year where I just hide indoors. <laughs> yeah, it's been rough. Uh, Teresa, do you have any recommendations? Do you have any escapes to help beat the heat? Um, no, I kind of just like take lots of showers, cold ones, maybe like three times a day since we're stuck in the house. So it just kind of works, you know. Yeah, the shower right before bed really does help, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, you got to cool down, like especially when you come in from outside, it's like... Okay. Okay. I like mm-hmm. to go out for a walk late, like in the evening, because it tends to feel nice and breezy as opposed to going out when the sun is at its height. Mm. Yeah, that's a good idea. I tried to take the dog out before 12 and then like after five. <laughs> Classic. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we got a great show for you guys this week. Um, and Matt, you're going to kick off our local segment, right? Yeah. And we're, uh, we're tossing it right back to you. Uh, you have, you've been hosting an, a virtual open mic called the Liberation Artist Showcase Open Mic. Uh, you describe it on, uh, on the evite that I saw as the Liberation Artist Showcase Open Mic is open to artists of all mediums. This event will create space to empower us to speak out against injustice and build community by supporting artists to whose expression inspires culture and intersectional understanding that humanizes us all. End quote. I know that's a lot of words, right? <laughs> it's good though. Cause like the focus to open mic is, I, I don't know. The only other focus to open mic I've went to before was called like new shit new shit Sundays and it was like it had to be something nobody had ever performed before you know wow that's pretty cool though I like that concept it, it was cool because like the, the audience is really forgiving uh but where, where'd you get uh why did you want to do a focused open mic about um promoting uh kind of activist uh culture instead of just a, a normal uh open mic well, it, it was really because when I created Liberation, which was way back many moons ago, um, I was doing a lot of community engagement, a lot of uh, organizing, and I felt like everybody's voice was not the same. Uh, there were artists that may not do the activism thing on a full-time level, but they're doing it with their art. And so they needed a stage. They needed a place to commune and kind of connect. And so it was really just kind of like freeing your mind from everything else. You know, like liberation is when you come and just let it all out, let it all hang out. But then it just over the years seemed like the climate every time I did it, people were just, you know, ready to protest. And what ends up happening is everyone gets really inspired to like use their art to do something else or tap into something that they've done before and try to bring it back out in a different fashion. So I thought it'd be fitting to happen right in this climate of Corona and protest and 2020 and everything that it is and will be. So here we are. Yeah. Yeah. You're really bringing the two worlds together of, of the, the virtual open mic and, and the, the activism out in the streets. Last Sunday, Emily, you saw, you attended, right? What was your impression? Yeah. 
It was it was more than last Sunday ago. I think it was t- three weeks ago, two weeks ago. T- what is time, yeah? It was June seventh. <laughs> June seventh. Yeah, yeah. So yeah like the June first 7th. and last uh, right. Sunday of this month, I did it. Yeah, and uh, it was awesome. It was uh, there was such a wide variety of really like genuinely talented artists across like a range of mediums from all over the world, even not just all over the country. Um, and it was very cool. And uh, I was like, I most open mics. I'm I'm like prepared for like some. <laughs> I guess I'm thinking <laughs> comedy, like mediocre, whatever. And I was I was really blown away by the caliber of the artist and their messages too um and it was really cool because there were also points of action throughout the night of like um so you weren't just you weren't just observing and watching um these artists they it was also like this participation thing where if you're ever feeling overwhelmed maybe because it's you know i i know that there's been a lot of messages about political action to take and people might be like overwhelmed by like what should I do? There's so much to do. And it, it's nice to be in this focused sort of space where you're not only enjoying yourself, but you're, you're learning about specific actions and you're with mm. a community that's taking those actions with you in real time. So it kind of, it really does feel like an impact is being made. Yeah. Um, wow. Really Thank cool. you, Emily. Oh I appreciate your reflection. I'm like, it's who's like, what's happening here? <laughs> yeah. No, Teresa, it's really cool. <laughs> no, that was great though. That just, that just really, really shows me that our, our mission was accomplished. So it that makes me cool. feel good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I want I want some details. Emily, what was yeah. your favorite or what, what stood out to you? What made a strong impression? I mean, I, I didn't know what to expect going in. So I think one of the first, if not the first artist, was actually a visual artist based out of, was it Sweden, Teresa? No, he was in uh, Finland. Finland, I'm so yeah, sorry. Yeah, Antoine King. Yeah, he was yes. in Finland. So it was like 2 a.m., where he yeah. was at but um it was really cool to connect with him because his art right. was just like so beautiful and powerful right and I think it's it's kind of a really cool way of using the digital like this sort of like medium for an open mic because in, in a general open mic you won't have a visual artist right because it's like it, it's always yeah. you know it's more performance based so it was cool to have a visual artist as part of an open mic what, what um, do you do? was it live painting or it was no. He mostly talked about his work, and he showed us his. He was in his studio showing us his work. Uh, it was and it was beautiful. His and he was. It, he's a new dad too, or something. So he was really tired, yeah. especially at two in the morning. But yeah, it was, it was very awesome. cool. Yeah, I really love to showcase the art, the visual art of the times. I feel like you know when you look at art from time periods in our lives, you can really see the humanity of people reflected. So if we were in a live format, um, the artists would have their work on showcase of whatever space we were in. That was always a really important part of liberation because, you know, what, what we see is what we see, you know, and people kind of forget that, you know, artists are out there creating these incredible works that can really just like take you somewhere if you spend some time with this. So I wanted to make sure that we were able to capture that too, you know? Um, so yeah, we got some great artists this week as well. Uh, one of the artists, visual artists that will be joining us is from Cincinnati, my hometown, and she and her team were working on their Black Lives Matter, um, ground presentation in Cincinnati. And so each letter was done by a different artist in the city. So ours is really dope in Cincinnati. It's much different than the ones I've seen across uh, the country. I think it's like an Ohio thing. All of, they have like multiple artists collaborating to paint the Black Lives Matter um, wording on the street. So it doesn't all look the same color. Yeah, so she's going to show us her story and show us she did the M. 
Okay, so, so she's gonna be cool. talking about it, or, or will she like be like up on the rooftop above it all and like <laughs> show us live? No, she ha- she actually has video from the day when they were painting. So we're gonna showcase some of that so you guys can this really so see cool. them at work. Yeah, I'm super excited to feature her. Um, definitely a really good friend of mine, and she wound up getting her MFA in Cincinnati Xavier. Her name is Adoria Maxberry. So yeah, it's gonna be a great show. That's just one of the artists, but I am so happy that people are willing to share their work right now and just really um, showcase what's coming. You know, it's a really creative time for all of us. And I think the purpose of liberation, all of us together, just doing something that's positive that shows our humanity and really connects people. That's what it's all about. So I hope you guys will join us. The tickets are on Eventbrite. Um, It's by donation. So please, if you love this, you know, uh, I have a DJ, I'm doing all of this from my living room in Brooklyn with my dog sitting there and trying not to get on the camera, but it's an <laughs> awesome night. And uh, I love just, you know, showcasing the work of artists that I've met and some of them I haven't, which is really cool. So you all better be there on yeah. Sunday night. Sunday I think night. I, was, I think I was at the same one that Emily was at. I think it was one of the first ones or the first one. Oh, and sorry, Jen. It was really, it was great. Like I, I liked how there were even dancers towards the end. Like so, and yeah. they had like little girls that were in the studio talking about, you know, why they dance. I like the energy. Like everybody seemed to be, you know, like even if you are like out in the street and working very hard, it's it's good to have some space to be creative or to just, you know, be around like-minded people. Thank you so much, Jasmine, and thank you guys for supporting. Um, my work. I've been trying to get back to it for a long time and the virtual world just made it like right at my fingertips. So I'm really grateful for it. Yeah. Uh, so this is this Sunday, June 28th at 7 p.m. goes till around 9.30. Uh, you can find it on, we're just going to Facebook and searching the Liberation Artist Showcase Open Mic. That will bring you to a Facebook page, which will bring you to the event bright and yeah, I, I think this is great. I was when when I first heard about it, I I had the very quote unquote like traditional idea of the open mic, but I'm excited about how it, much you're expanding it and also kind of the community building sounds so great and and it's so cool because the, the literally having such a wide variety of art uh, is a beautiful analogy for what movements are. Like it is a big variety. There's local politics there's uh smaller housing rights organizations there's uh you know there's so many different things that you can do uh, and i think that that metaphor works so i'm excited thank you matt thanks Teresa. thank you no Wait. problem looking forward to it just really trying to share some love into the world so yeah i'll see y'all on sunday sunday when you're listening to this broadcast oh, you can come yeah. check out the show on In sunday six night. hours <laughs> And I'll put the information on our Objection to the Rule um, Facebook page as well. So, yeah. Great. Awesome. I'm going to continue on with a short, uh, short local story. Um, I'm just going to dive right in. Uh, It has a little bit of a weird beginning. So let's see how this goes. The olive sided, <laughs> the olive sided flycatcher is a North American songbird named for being the only North American flycatching bird that exclusively feeds on ants, bees, wasps, and other insects. It's a coveted site for birders. That's what bird watchers call themselves. It has a beautiful call, mnemonically remembered as "quick three beers," or also. 
People love its kinetic hunting style. Quote, it consumes small prey in the air and carries larger prey back to the perch where it bashes it against the perch to subdue it if necessary, end quote. But it's also coveted because of its scarcity. They produce just one broad a year, a broad baby bird. That combined with the effects of habitat loss, you'll see why their numbers have dropped 79% since 1970. The bird is amazing. Its migration is vast from Alaska to the Andes. The small songbird makes the trip yearly, well, twice yearly. One, one stop in their trip is Central Park, which is where Christian Cooper spent hours each morning in hopes of spotting and hearing this dwindling songbird. It's also the location of the racist threat made against him by Amy Cooper. We're all familiar with that story. But what I didn't know is how much of a birder he really was. My friend who works at the Autobahn Society, where Mr. Cooper is a board member, uh, I told him that I was surprised to learn that Christian Cooper was also, uh, also created the first gay human character in the Star Trek universe. My friend told me, quote, Yeah, he's so nice and handsome and smart. I love him. I helped him with trivia nights for Autobahn. That is the birding and bird preservation society in New York City. That Christian Cooper is a cool person doesn't make the racist threat leveled at him more racist. His character doesn't really matter in that regard. But I just wanted to take a moment to do a mini profile of a cool person and revel for a moment in the majesty of songbirds. And then if we're lucky, Emily will place a little clip of the songbirds call. It's supposed to sound like a uh, quick three beers. Yeah, it doesn't sound like that, but it kind of does. <laughs> awesome. All right. So we are going to take a break for some music and then we will be back with some national news. Uh, this first song up is Beyonce with Black Parade. We'll be right back. I'm going back, 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 back when my roots ain't watered down. Growing, growing like a bulbop tree, all life on for the ground. My ancestor put me on game, on charm, on gold chains, with my old shoon in a jail. Drip all on me. Uncle, I just should keep praying. Holla, Donna, Stella, Sacha, Nacha, Bison. Welcome back. 
to Objection to the Rule live on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Beyonce's newest song, Black Parade. Um, I think she released it on Juneteenth, which is quite interesting. But um, I like it. So I know my co-hosts haven't really heard it yet. So hopefully you guys will feel the same way I do. All right, Jasmine, you heard it, right? I w- yeah, I was actually at um, this podcast. I like the, it's called Queen with T- Queen T with Queen and J is the name of the show. And they have a Juneteenth kickback every year. So it was d- while I was like listening to that on Zoom in the chat, like people started talking about Beyonce dropping a song. So it's like a lot of people like just started reacting right away. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll have to take another listen to it when I'm listening back to this Sunday's episode. Yeah. A lot of imagery in that song. So we will talk back about that again, but Jasmine, you got the uh, national news this week, right? Yes. So, um, we did talk a lot last week about some Supreme court decisions that were Good news for a lot of people, but unfortunately, this past Thursday, the Supreme Court handed down a a decision that is really terrible for asylum seekers. Um, This information comes from a Slate.com article by Dahlia Lithwick and Mark Joseph Stern, and the title is The Supreme Court Doesn't Seem Asylum Seekers as People. So this past Thursday morning, there was a seven to two ruling that approved the current administration's denial of habeas corpus for asylum seekers, meaning um, they, the Supreme Court has ruled that if you are an asylum seeker and you are being deported, you don't have a right to fight your deportation before a judge. So the two people that were against this ruling were Justice Sotomayor and and um, Elena Kazan, I believe her her last name is. It's Kagan. Kagan. Okay, sorry, yeah. wrong wrong consonant. <laughs> um, so yeah, unfortunately, it was seven to two, and those were the two dissenters. So the case was the Department of Homeland Security versus through right. Thurai Sijiam, so T-H-U-R-A-I-S-S-I-G-I-A-M. So that person is an asylum seeker from Sri Lanka who, if he's deported back to Sri Lanka, is likely to be killed because of his ethnicity. He's Tamil. He was caught by border patrol when he was trying to cross the southern border. An asylum officer and immigration judge rejected his claim for asylum and he was slated for expedited removal. And initially there was a ninth U.S. Circus Court of Appeals who found that it was unconstitutional to send him, to deport him without, you know, being able to see a judge. But in the latest court decision, the courts have stripped due process from immigrants seeking asylum. So it's very dangerous because this means if at any point like you, you are seeking asylum and you're, they decide to fast track you, you don't have the protection of being able to fight it. So under this now court approved system, immigrants who are fleeing their home country out of fear have to undergo what's called a credible fear interview and they have to explain why they qualify for asylum. And under Trump, 
Customs and Border Protection agents are allowed to be doing these interviews and not trained asylum officers. So it's up to these officers if they decide that they don't believe you have a reason to be afraid of persecution in your home country. Their supervisor will review that decision. And so will an immigration judge. If they don't believe that you have a credible fear, you're thrown into expedited removal, and meaning that you're going to be deported in only a matter of weeks, and you don't have a right to contest the determination of credible fear before a federal court. Um, Justice Samuel Alito also said that unauthorized immigrants who are already physically present in the U.S. have not entered the country. So they have no due process right to challenge the government's asylum determination. So I, I think that it's important to keep up with all of these decisions that are being made. Um, and I know it, I, it came up on Twitter a few times that there's a lot of like cult of personality around um, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and how she's so liberal and yada, yada, yada. But here we see, like, she sided with the major the conservative majority to allow for these expedited removals to happen. And <clears throat> there have also been, uh, in light of the DACA decision, like, being such a great decision for so many people, there have been um, several immigrants' rights activists and immigrants who have been doing interviews saying that while it's good, one of the downsides is having this good immigrant versus bad immigrant or like a useful immigrant versus a non-useful immigrant type of dichotomy because, you know, even if you're not someone who has been here since you were a little child, even if you don't have perfect grades or you're not a quote-unquote productive person, that doesn't mean that you deserve to be deported. So, yeah, I, I was between this and a different national story, but I decided to go with this one since it ties into some of the other big court news that we've been talking about recently. Uh, thank you for that. Yeah, thanks for that story, Jasmine. Um, I'm just, I'm looking now and I see that classic uh, Alito wrote the majority opinion from my hometown like a jerk yeah, it was really gross <laughs> like the things that he was that he was writing was just so dehumanizing and he referred to the defendant like he was making these snarky remarks like oh like we're happy to put him back on a plane or whatever Ugh. and you uh, know these people are really afraid for their lives you know like there's people that are escaping domestic violence there's people mm -hmm. that are escaping gender-based violence they're escaping gang violence religious persecution and to have people treat that like it's just this flippant thing is really disgusting yeah i feel up. like it's closer we get to november we're going to see so much more um action between the court and the politicians like these these worlds are kind of like being so exposed at this moment. And I feel like there's so much more to come. Uh, each week we have something new to report about our time. Um, and it's funny how people pose and then they they perform, if you will. Hmm. 
I, I don't really understand the mechanics of of this ruling. Was it was it that they said that um, they're not able to appeal? Like, why why aren't they allowed to appeal the initial asylum hearing? I guess like they're determined. They're saying that you know you're not a citizen. You're they have you don't have the right that I guess a citizen would have to argue that you shouldn't be detained or that you shouldn't be um, sent back. So typically, like most of the headlines that I saw were calling it, you know, a suspension of habeas corpus, like that typically you have the right to appear before a judge before you're detained. And initially, I think back in September, there was a U.S. appeals court that, you know, fought Trump on it and said, no, like, even if you're not a citizen, you still have a right to go before a judge and present your case for why you should be allowed to stay. But they've decided that that doesn't apply to asylum seekers. Mm. Yeah, it's stuff like this. That's how that's how you get like, you know, people stuck in Guantanamo Bay for like 20 years without a trial right it's like it's this idea that you know human rights or yeah like full human rights are are only for full citizens that's pretty upsetting to you know have come down from the supreme court especially when universal human rights is something that all signers of these uh very large um, sort of law-based governance orders that all these countries sign on to are supposed to be afforded to people in every country. You know, it's not like it's human rights for Americans and then human rights for non-Americans. There's universal human rights that um, include all of these rights that are being violated right now. So, but nobody pays yeah. attention to that stuff anymore, right? Everybody just kind of <laughs> on some Mm-mm. anarchy shit doing whatever they want to do right now. <laughs> Yeah, really. Not trying to make light of it, but that's how it feels. Like I know. Yeah, I mean, I I do feel like um, I personally don't have a lot of faith in these institutions. Period. I mean, even if you look at something like Brown versus Board of Education happened in what 1954, or am I getting the year wrong, or 64? It's been over 50 years and our schools are extremely segregated still. And it's just, you know, I, I'm looking forward to the day when we don't have to say like, oh, well, this is what the courts have decided, like these people with these lifetime appointments. And then it's like, oh, well, there's nothing we can do. Or like, oh, well, it's fixed. Because clearly it's not fixed, you know, like there's all these judges appointments that have been made to try to set an agenda for generations. And I'm hoping that we're able to overturn that in our lifetime. Cause it's just, it's not right. Well, the weird thing is I've heard people talk about the Supreme court where the, what, what's the name of the, like the leader of the court. What's that called? Yeah. The chief justice. They'll be strategic and they won't make rulings like the they won't make rulings before uh the general public like they won't make big rulings that uh, until the general public is with them because they're nervous about people's faith in the courts and it's just this kind of weird question of there's supposed to be these lawyers that just like look at you know the text and and yada 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 
but it it's hard to hard to really figure out like what type of legal philosophy <laughs> yeah and on want. to piggy to piggyback on that too, Matt, there was a daily episode of the New York Times podcast series where they were looking at the Supreme Court decisions being made. And I can't remember the specifics, unfortunately, but a liberal, one of the liberal justices sided with a conservative justice on an issue that it would you would expect the liberal justice to not side with the conservatives on the majority. But the reasoning behind it was the argument, I believe it was one of, it was a female, uh, it was one of the female justices. The reason she did it is being like they were the person analyzing the situation saw the argument she was making as one that sh- that one would hope could be applied to if like Roe v. Wade was ever challenged in the court that she would be like, well, you conservative judge, you made this argument for this case. So how are you going to not make the same argument for um, like abortion rights. So it was interesting because it's like, you know, the 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 Supreme Court is political, not just in the larger spectrum of the United States, but like within the court itself. And they're they're all sort of making political plays with a lot of their decision making, um, thinking about what cases might come up and how, you know, they're siding with certain things at certain times. It's and it's fascinating and, you know, sort of can be sort of icky, too. Um, cause basically every case they're hearing is like vital, um, yeah, for everyone. Well, while you're playing a political game mm-hmm. of like this long game of chess, people are being murdered for real. Like, and you're going to be on the bench for however many years, like making, like having these debates and playing these rhetorical games and how many people have to die or be tortured in the meantime like it's really it's like yeah like I can get it intellectually why they do a lot of what they do but I personally don't see it as it reminds me of people that want to turn every fucking thing into a debate and it's Mm -hmm. like when I'm not debating whether or not people like deserve to live or like whether or not it's okay to let someone be sent back to be tortured to death because they're a woman or something like it was just a very dis after seeing you know some ray of hope with some of the other decisions like having this come down like a week later was just really really sad Mm -hmm. yeah supreme court i don't think constitutionally they have to be life time appointments i don't think they're even limited on the numbers <laughs> so it's like mm, this right seemingly immovable institution that i think if you look at it, it has more often than not in the big decisions not been on the side of uh those with less power uh does you know it doesn't have to be this way or it doesn't even have to be i mean i don't know i don't know about you guys but like i don't have that much faith in the idea of the whole like legal structure of america and this whole like you know let's worship the constitution yeah i mean i think uh yeah i think that the the constitution was supposed to be able to change with the times and then there's a lot of people who just decide like a lot of conservative people that just decide that that's not true that what the constitution said is exactly it and that's it forever and i think my comment was also goes along with that. Yeah, it's like it's like that wasn't the point. Like the point they, they is immediately changed adjust. it, didn't they? It's like the Bill yeah, of Rights. They're like, like the oh, Bill of Rights. we already yeah. fucked up. Yeah, it's like fucked up. And you know, I I agree. Like the lifetime appointment thing goes against basically every other like system we have in place in this country to like a check power. Essentially, it's like how does a lifetime appointment like serve anyone? 
really, you know, it like is so inflexible. I think it's also interesting how like people suspect the Supreme Court leaders to like stay the same forever. Like, I, I, I don't know, like for any person to expect a politician to always vote a certain way, it kind of like negates the fact that this person has like, you know, free will and hopefully they're in power to activate the things that they believe in. Like, I feel like some some people can feel one way at certain times and then change after a while or be influenced to make differences based on their past. There's something that's so unforgiving in politics and I completely understand, right? I mean, it's a shit show most of the time, but at the heart of it, it's almost like, don't you have free will to make decisions that are logical based on where you are right now? Or is it all about serving your base forever and ever and ever? Like, where is the humanity in that? How are you representing anybody other than some concept? You know yeah. what I'm saying? If not there, then like where? Like, like what do you, what do you want? Exactly. For? That, that's what we expect from you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, um, yeah. I mean, that goes way back. So like, the founding or Jeff or Washington, I think, or one of the founding fathers, if not all of them were very anti political parties because they saw it becoming these like monolithic things that, uh, where, where humans aren't monolithic and like ideas shouldn't be monolithic, you know, like this, like one thing and this is right. So we see that playing out exactly like in a court that should not be, it shouldn't be left or right. It should be, there's a large spectrum of decision-making process, you know, in between, and like the whole, our whole society is like very, you know, not to, I don't know. I feel like every single news outlet is always saying, you know, it's like polarized or whatever, but it's like it, this split that's like, you're either red or you're either or you're blue is like not healthy or I mean, like if you go it's back, not how humans work. <laughs> if you go back and look at the red and blue, none of that shit was really formed on the premises that exist in right now. If you ask me. There's a lot of like crisscross messaging over the years and how it was even originated, you know, the the things that Republicans and Democrats stood for when this whole party system was created are completely different than what is in the news about them or what we believe them to be today. You know, so there there's just so much wrong with it. I don't know. I like the color green anyway. Mm. Nice. <laughs> Jasmine, when you were reading up on this stuff, did you have any... Uh... Yeah, what, what kind of stood out to you that uh, that you didn't know before? That I didn't know before. Yeah, like or like what kind of like stuck out that um, because like some some of these things they sunk. We've been covering a lot of Supreme Court stuff, so I'm kind of I'm wondering like what what observation or what what type of thing uh, popped out or that you thought was unique about this case. I think I already said it. I mean, I think the fact that it was seven to two and one of the judges that I, you know, that was how I came to the story was there's um, even this documentary about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and everything and how she's so great or whatever. Like that was one of the sticking points is that, well, like she sided with the conservative majority to take this right away from asylum seekers. So I didn't, I wouldn't say that anything um, like that I learned anything, but that definitely stood out to me is that, you know, there's a lot of people that are, they're very removed from what these decisions mean for someone's life. 
or for the lives of like thousands of people. And it can just be like this intellectual exercise for them to come to these decisions. So that was what stood out to me. Um, I'll keep looking to see like if I'm not really sure like what specifically one can do at this point to help but I do know that there's organizations like the New Sanctuary Coalition of New York City that helps people that are seeking asylum Um, and I'll be sure to post information about how people can support asylum seekers to the best of their ability now because we're obviously in a very hostile climate for immigrants right now. Or we have been in one, but it's it's getting even worse. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing us that story, Jasmine. Uh, definitely something to be on the lookout for these changes. And just the whole concept of asylum as an American right now, I feel like, where can I go? But we're not going to say <laughs> that concept too long. We're going to take one more musical break. Uh, this next song is by Sia. And it's called The Greatest. We'll be right back. to Objection to the Rule, live on Radio Free Brooklyn, or pre-recorded on Radio Free Brooklyn. Um, So that was Sia with The Greatest. I love the lyrics of this song. It's so motivating uh, when you get a chance to check it out, to do so. She just kind of talks about how she's free to be the greatest because she's alive and because she's here tonight, tonight at the Liberation Open Mic. Anyway, moving on. Okay, so I am bringing you guys the world news today. Uh, Trigger warning, this story is um it's a bit much but you know we got to talk about it so 
I have drawn the information for this story from an article in the Daily News by Nelson Oliveira and also from CNN.com by Raymond Mostagin. Uh, I probably said that wrong. And then finally from an article on BBC. So three men were arrested in Iran for trying to sell babies on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, Tehran's police chief said that one of the children was just 20 days old and the other was two months old. The babies had already been sought for up to $500 and were being resold for between $2,000 and $2,500. One of the men that was arrested is quoted as allegedly saying he was getting babies from poor families and handing them over to families who would provide a better future, end quote. Uh, the officers uncovered 15 pages on Instagram and found the two babies with the three men when they were arrested. The babies were handed over to social services. This is not the first case um, uncovered by authorities in Iran. Earlier this year, police in a province of Grojan said that they arrested four women and a man who allegedly been finding poor pregnant women and paying their hospital expenses, then taking away their babies after they gave birth. Um, this is really awful. I just was a, a bit overwhelmed when I seen this, you know, we're on these uh, social media platforms like constantly and just, you know, I don't see this shit, but I know it's out there. Um, a spokesperson for Facebook, which owns Instagram, told CNN that the company was investigating this. Facebook has a human exploitation policy, which covers harmful activities related to human exploitation and trafficking. And trafficking and Instagram users are encouraged to report any concerning content using the in-app tool for its reporting form. Um, they had a statement where they said, we do not allow content or behavior on Instagram that may lead to human exploitation, which includes the sale of children for illegal adoption. We're aware of reports of this activity and we are continuing to investigate. Uh, that was the end of their statement. Um, just some little background knowledge. Iran is among number 21 on uh, of tier three countries in the U.S. State Department's annual trafficking and persons report, which ranks nations that compromise the worst offenders of human trafficking. The countries listed in this tier do not fully meet the minimum standards for the elimination of trafficking and are not making any efforts to do so. So that is um, what was um, reported in this report that was published just last year. So in Iran, um, there's a high number of expectant mothers selling babies. I've seen in the news, some of their leaders of many community organizations kind of talk about the reason behind this, basically saying that women are facing a variety of factors, which include poverty, drug addiction, um, child marriage and homelessness. And in a world of a pandemic, you can imagine how this is even more dire and um just more crazy. You know, this is the story I found this week in the news, but I'm sure it doesn't really reflect what's happening all over the world. Iran is not the only country where people have tried to sell their children on social media. Um, in this reporting, I found that in the U.S. and Oklahoma, a mom once used Facebook to try to sell her two kids for $4,000 so she could pay her boyfriend's bail. Um, and that was according to the police statement that was made. Yeah, so it's never easy to report uh, stories of this nature, um, you know, with, with all of the things going on in this world. I feel like with some of the stories we covered today, considering asylum, human trafficking, these are concepts that kind of get, you know, pushed into the mush of social justice things that we need to be uh, fighting for and talking about. Um, but yeah, this is the same Instagram we log on to every day. You know, I've never come across 
any of these um, specific pages, but I'm not looking for it either. I really, you know, I, I'm just a little boggled about like, if you see this, would you report it? Like, were there many people reporting? Was this one thing that was found out? Um, and how is this done? You know, I, I'm grateful that they did make a statement, but it doesn't really say much to me. It's kind of just like reiterating what they have in their policies. Um, but there should be, you know, just a lot more regulation in regards to topics like this, just a, a lot more uh, safety measures being taken. You know, if I'm not highlighting this story, I don't know if any of us would have seen it because we're not looking for this, but this shit is happening like right now um, in the middle of this pandemic. And, you know, this is a world story about Iran, but I'm sure, as it said, they're not the only ones having this issue. It's happening here like every day. Like there was a recent news story about, um, especially with international adoptions, like there's people creating Facebook groups where they will adopt a child from a foreign country, like Americans, and then try to quote unquote, like rehouse them the way you would do like a pet with someone else. And there was a, I, I wish I had looked it up before, like right before we recorded since it's relevant, but they've uncovered people that have a history of abusing children and these kids are getting passed around like set like human trafficking especially trafficking in children is really this very dark sinister thing that happens right under a lot of our noses and people don't even realize it and it can be happening through what seems to be a legitimate institution that people are perverting so, yeah, it's definitely something I think should be on all of our radars to, you know, be aware that this is happening and it's not just happening somewhere over there. Mm-hmm. And it's it's also to be noted, this is this is about poverty um, and the sanctions. Whenever the U.S. applies sanctions on countries, we know it's a blunt tool that hurts the general population. It's not. Uh, it's not a one, you know. So like these these yeah, people who are absolutely. being who are being exploited and and trapped and and their kids are being taken from them because they're in you know economic despair. Like that's already doing. I mean, you there's know? so many layers to it, and you're right, Matt. When I was doing the research for this, that was the next story. Like talking about you know. Um, how the poverty in Iran is has been ransacked because of the sanctions put on by the U.S. and other countries, and just you know, especially in a COVID world where, you know, the same level of support, if you will, okay, dollars, whatever you want to call it, that we put out for international aid is obviously uh, being redirected. We don't know exactly where. I'm not saying I, I know economics in that way, but I'm for sure that they're not sending the same amount of money overseas for anything, considering the fact they're trying to put something in our bank account called the HEROES Act, where that at? But anyway, I'm just saying the reality is like, this is a real problem and it's, it's happening, you know, all the time, not to try to take away anything from the movements that we're all in right now, but I just, you know, I've never really done a lot of research in this in my grad school program. We did talk about it quite a bit in a lot of my uh, human rights courses, but as a, you know, everyday American, I am not as engaged in this dialogue. And I, I feel like there's an opportunity for us to really think about this in the times that we're living in right now, when people are going through so much. 
I mean, it's happening right around us, as you said. And, you know, I definitely just want to just put it out there for us to really stand behind, you know, agencies that are doing this work and, and trying to help people in this situation. I mean, the baby was 20 days old. Um, just the thought of that, I, I just, I'm, I'm just completely overwhelmed. But yeah. having to even report that, but. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for bringing the story. I, I hadn't heard about it. It's It's a very good story to kind of show people what can happen in a neoliberal global economy where we let giant businesses eat up markets and exploit workers and not pay people. Um, because whenever you have heightened poverty, that's all these human trafficking um, cases, they come, they come from people without money, you know, it's, it's, and it's a very terrifying example of what happens when we don't think about um, the effects of our cheap ass goods that we get, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I think especially with, there's a lot more people that are tuning into discussions of defunding police and abolishing certain systems. And one of the most important things to remember about those philosophies is that at the root, it's about getting at the root of the problem. Because if what you're doing is just having severe consequences for someone who is caught trafficking, for example, that doesn't solve the initial problem like what Matt is talking about, where why is it that we have this many people in a position where they are willing to sell their own kid? And a lot of people that get involved in trafficking, it's because someone that they know has tricked them or they were desperate for money. So you, we really have to look at what is the root cause instead of just trying to throw resources at it after it has happened. Like there's, I'm sure like people are not just waking up because they just feel like getting rid of their child. Like they're being driven to these really desperate situations by the economy. Yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, poverty right now, not like it wasn't before COVID, but it's definitely a different situation right now. You know, I think a lot of us have been maintaining in this world, but the reality is like, guys, we've been on quarantine for like over a hundred days. Um, when we get to October, we have, October, we have, right. When we get to October and if we're still doing our show virtually, if we're still doing this just imagine um, what's happening here. It's been going on forever in other places um, that we directly are, you know, interdependent on because that's what this world is. We're all interdependent on one, each, one another. So, um, you know, yeah, I will. That's the truth. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, we live in a, a, a world where we, I mean, literally are now really learning what it means to be interdependent on each other. I think we all kind of lived under a facade a little bit. Uh, before this, which is why I always like reporting on world news, because it just really puts us in the mind of the greater context that is life. You know, we can get so overwhelmed with just being Americans, we kind of forget we're just a little piece on the other side of the world. But um, yeah, just some more to come on this. I definitely feel like this story touched me in a different way this week, just because it's something I haven't really done a lot of research on. But um, definitely an issue that's important for us to try to support or advocate. I don't even know where to start with this shit, but I'm definitely going to try. All right, guys. Well, let's take a breath. I think we're going to insert a song here because we need to breather. <laughs> I support <Yeah>. that. 
right, so our final track for today, or maybe we may have one snippet. Uh, this is Will Smith with Summertime. We'll be right back. Drums, please. <laughs> a bit of a break from the norm just a little something to break the monotony of all that hardcore dance that has gotten to be a little bit out of control it's cool to dance but what about a groove that soothes and moves romance give me a soft subtle mix and if it ain't broke then don't try to fix it and think of the summers of the past adjust the bass and let the alpine blast pop in my cd and let me run around and put your car on cruise and lay back because it's summertime And checking out the fellas to tell them who's best Riding around in your Jeep or your Benzos Or in your Nissan sitting on Lorenzo's Back in Philly we be out in the park A place called the Plateau is where everybody goes Welcome back to Objection to the Rule Live on Radio Free Brooklyn I hope you enjoyed that last track That was Will Smith, Summertime It's hot as hell And recording in our house with our ACs off Because we wanted to sound good for (laughs) y'all All right, so Emily you got our good news story Bring it girl because we need it I know, and I'm so happy to present this story. So um, it comes from a June 24th press release from NASA.gov titled, NASA Names Headquarters After Hidden Figure Mary W. Jackson. So on Wednesday, Jim Bridenstine, the NASA administrator, which is the position title, (laughs) um, it's like the head dude, uh, I think, announced that the building housing NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C. will be renamed after Mary Winston Jackson, who was NASA's first African-American female engineer. The building was previously just called NASA headquarters or Two Independence Square, which isn't the name of the address either. So uh, this is a huge improvement on many levels. Um But anyway, so the release explains that Jackson, quote, successfully overcame the barriers of segregation and gender bias to become a professional aerospace engineer and leader in ensuring equal opportunities for future generations. Um, She was born in 1921 in Hampton, Virginia. She graduated in 1942 with a dual degree in math and physical sciences from Hampton Institute. And she worked as a math teacher, bookkeeper uh, and U.S. Army secretary and also started a family all before being recruited in 1951 by the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, which was what NASA, which was what NASA used to be. And it became NASA in 1958. Um, when she was there, she first worked as a research mathematician or what they called human computer. Um, she worked under Dorothy Vaughn in the segregated West Area Computing Unit of NASA's Langley Research Center in Hampton, Virginia. And both women were featured in the 2016 film Hidden Figures, based on the book from the same year, titled Hidden Figures, The American Dream and the Untold Story of the Black Women Mathematicians Who Helped Win the Space Race, uh, which was written by Margot Lee Shetterly. 
and Jackson was portrayed by Janelle Monet in the film. Um, after having to ask for special permission to take a training program classes or to take training program classes at the then segregated Hampton High School, Jackson became NASA's first black female engineer in 1958. Uh, she would go on to join Langley's federal women's program, quote, where she worked hard to address the hiring and promotion of the next generation of female mathematicians, uh, engineers and scientists. So she retired in 1985 and passed away in 2005. Uh, she was posthumously awarded the Congressional Gold Medal by Trump, of all people, uh, in 2019, along with her Hidden Figures colleagues, Katherine Johnson, Dorothy Vaughn, and Christine Darden. Uh, and then the administra- administrator, Bridenstine, which is such an official title to call him, um, said during the announcement on Wednesday, uh, Mary W. Jackson was, a part, was part of a group of very important women who helped NASA succeed in getting American astronauts into space. Mary never accepted the status quo. She helped break barriers and open opportunities for African-Americans and women in the field of engineering and technology. Today, we proudly announced that Mary W. Jackson NASA headquarters uh, announced the Mary W. Jackson NASA headquarters building. It appropriately sits on Hidden Figures Way, a reminder that Mary is one of many incredible and talented professionals in NASA's history who contributed to this agency's success. Hidden no more, we will continue to recognize the contributions of women, African Americans, and people of all backgrounds who have made NASA's successful history of exploration possible. Um, yeah, and that's the story. Awesome! Ooh, yay. I love Hidden Figures. It's like one of my favorite movies ever. It's such a good movie. Yeah. I know mm. my students hate it because I play it every year during <laughs> this month. I'm like, it's an awesome story. It's so good. Yay! Well, that is it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for tuning in. We appreciate you checking us out, even during quarantine. For all of our old episodes, check out our uh, Radio Free Brooklyn, the app, or you can... Oh, there's Layla. Here, let me didn't didn't we have, like, a chant last time or something? Uh... <laughs> we had a chant. And we are... <laughs> oh, 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 the sign-off. Okay, we can do that. Okay, she's calm now. All right, here we go. And that's it, guys. Thank you for tuning in to Objection to the Rule. Um, You can find all of our old episodes on the Radio Free Brooklyn website or the app or anywhere else you can find iTunes podcasts. Uh, We're going to do a rollout. I am Teresa. (laughs) That's your cue. (laughs) I'm I'm Matthew. And I'm Jasmine. We'd like to thank you guys for listening. Be sure to stay on and check out Radio Free Brooklyn for more independent Brooklyn media. See you next week. Bye. Bye.